So it almost feels as though we have been holding our breath, waiting for Jesus and his disciples to arrive back in Jerusalem. We have spent much time over the last two months talking about how Jesus' focused ministry in the region of Galilee has come to an end. Our Lord has now got his heart and his mind very firmly fixed on the cross. And in the time that remains between now and Passover, Jesus would not spend in big, open, public acts of teaching and ministry, but rather on the focused training of the twelve, of those to whom the message of the kingdom of God would be entrusted. There was no plan B. There was no alternative route. These men were it. The message of the kingdom of God would be entrusted to them, and from them it was meant to reach the ends of the earth. And they had a long way to go. They had a long way to go in understanding Jesus' death and resurrection, perhaps even further to go in understanding how they were intended to relate to it. So we return this morning to our reading in Mark 9. I invite you to turn in your Bibles there and go ahead and stand to your feet. In the reverence of reading of God's Word, we're going to be reading in verse 33. This is the Word of God. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Father God, we are so slow to put to death the God of self. We are so very determined to be the masters and center of this universe. Father, it takes something supernatural, an absolute change from outside of us, coming into us, and completely rearranging our focus, our hearts, and making of us something new. We thank you for that work, and we look forward to the continued fruit, the continued change as a result of our interaction with you through your word this morning. In your son's precious name we pray, amen. So it began like this, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house... So we read last week that Jesus was going to merely be passing through Galilee. It was his desire, in fact, that no one would know that he was there. And yet in spite of this, there's a couple of reasons why he would have gone ahead and made this one last stop in the town of Capernaum. First among them, of course, is his desire for the teaching that we're going to study this morning and in the weeks to come. But then just practically, as the crow flies, it's 27 miles from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum. Now, Jesus and his disciples, these were men that had spent much of their life traveling on foot from town to town. By almost any standard today, they would have been very fit. So it would not have been extraordinary for these men to walk upwards of 30 miles in any one day. But even still, at that pace, just logistically, practically, it would have been necessary for these men to stop somewhere in this region. Now, they were men that were perfectly comfortable sleeping out under the stars. They would have been just fine sleeping on the ground. They had spent many a night sleeping on the ground with their Savior, looking up at the stars. And they would have been perfectly fine sleeping outside of the town somewhere. But if you're in the region of Capernaum, why not, if you have a house there available to you, slip inside away from the crowds for one last night? Now, what you'll notice in the text is it doesn't just say that they were in a house. It says that they were in the house. 
I have to believe almost certainly that this was the house of Peter and Andrew. This is a house where Jesus had spent a lot of time. It was in this house where Jesus, after cleansing the man of the unclean spirit there in the synagogue, this was the house where he went. He encountered Peter's mother-in-law. She had a very high fever, and Jesus healed her instantaneously. This was also the house where the crowds had come, just so swarmed the house because they knew that Jesus was there, that a paralytic man's friends, he had to remove the roof from, they had to remove the roof from the house so they could lower their friend down, and there Jesus could heal him. Jesus has spent much time in this house, in the house. If you go to Capernaum today, you'll find a house that they're reasonably confident is the house. He continues, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? See, the way that groups traveled back then, it would not have been ridiculous for these men to believe that they could have had a conversation or even an argument and that Jesus wouldn't have been able to hear them. Firstly, because some of the paths along the way from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum at that time would have required that they walk single file. They wouldn't have walked all bunched up together where they could hear everything that was being said. But in addition to that, no follower, no disciple, no learner would ever walk stride for stride side by side with their rabbi. That was just not a thing that you would do. So you see, there's never, in the history of the universe, there has never been a more loaded statement than Jesus' call to follow me. We will spend our entire lives trying to fully unravel all that it means and trying to rightly obey what it means. But it means, at least in part, for these men, follow me. Like literally, physically, walk behind me and go everywhere that I go. And so it wouldn't have been crazy for these men to think that they could have this conversation and that Jesus wasn't going to be able to hear what they said. But Luke tells us that Jesus knew the reasoning of their hearts. See, not only did Jesus know that there was a conversation going on back there, not only did he know the topic of the conversation, not only did he know every single word that was being had in that conversation, but he knew the driver. He knew the purpose. He knew the very heart behind this conversation. And so Jesus didn't ask this question because he needed to learn something. He didn't ask this question because he didn't know. Jesus asked this question for the purpose of this teaching. This was Jesus' very favorite method of instruction. He would ask a question, and then he would just sit. He would just wait in awkward silence while the men either sat in silence or they fumbled for an answer, and it revealed just how far they had to come in their understanding. So Jesus asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. These dudes, man, they were, they were embarrassed and, and maybe a little bit afraid to answer Jesus because they knew. They knew the incongruity. They knew the disconnect. They knew how tone deaf it was in light of everything that Jesus had been teaching for them to be there arguing about something like this, about which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Because the Lord had spoken so, so clearly so plainly and so consistently about his coming rejection and suffering and death. And all of that, a perfect picture of absolute humility while these men argued about greatness. And lest you wonder to yourself, what on earth does Jesus' death possibly have to do with humility? Listen to what God said through the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the Philippians. I read from Philippians 2, 6-8. You may want to put your finger there because we're going to spend a little bit of time back there. Go ahead and turn to Philippians 2 if you'd like. A beautiful passage of text. Big, thick theology there. But we read in Philippians 2, verse 6 through 8, about Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Now, I've spoken to you often and regularly about the condescension of Christ. Now, using its most ordinary terms in common lingo, common lingo to be condescending or to condescend is not a positive thing. It most often carries the connotation of looking down or speaking down to someone, showing a heart that believes that you're superior to someone else. But Christ Jesus really is superior. He really is greater, greater than everything, greater than the angels, greater than us, greater than all of his creation. As the second member of the Godhead, as God the Son, of one essence, of one substance, of one nature with God the Father, fully and totally God. He truly is greater, more magnificent, more glorious, more worthy than anything or anyone that has ever been in heaven or on earth. And yet while he was there, enjoying his perfect, high and holy place in heaven, the place where only he belongs, it was then that he chose to descend, to condescend, to stoop down and become a man, coming to earth, emptying himself. He didn't empty himself of his godness. He emptied himself of his right to act on his own divinity. He emptied himself of his right to be treated to the station that he deserves. Remaining fully God and yet stooping down, condescending to come to earth and become fully man. Like other men with minds that must learn, bodies that must rest, wills that must be subjected to the will of the Father. Do not for one second overlook all that Jesus let loose in coming to be born of a woman and coming to be fully man. There has never been a greater step down in all of history. The creator coming into his creation. Never, ever, ever has anyone stooped so much late, lower than their proper station than this. As Jesus stepped into earth. More than this, to allow himself to be handed over. To be betrayed by the hands of evil men. And then, without even uttering a response without even uttering a cry, to be accused, to be tried, to be mocked, to be stripped, to be beaten, and to be murdered, hung upon a tree. There's never been a greater act of humility in all of history. I talked to you last week about this, about how what we saw there on the cross of Jesus Christ was the ultimate picture of God's love and justice coming together perfectly, but at the same time, it was the ultimate picture of hum humility. As the only perfect man that had ever lived, the only innocent man that has ever walked the earth, the God-man, Jesus Christ our Lord, humbled himself to the point of death, even death upon a cross, as he willingly, in absolute obedience to the Father, as he willingly, in great humility, subjected himself to the most public, the most humiliating of executions. And in the middle of Jesus' teaching about all of this, these dudes didn't just have a passing thought. They didn't just have a casual conversation. They fought. They argued about which one of them would be the greatest. Matthew makes clear that the focus was on which one of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, they believed Jesus' teaching. They believed Jesus' teaching that the kingdom was at hand. They knew that Jesus was the Christ, even the Son of God. They believed that the one they were following after was the king, and now they fought for their proper place. They fought for their place to be great within the kingdom of God. These were men that had no previous standing. They had no power they had no authority within this world, and yet now, in this moment, because of their affiliation with Jesus Christ, they thought they saw their path. As they marched towards Jerusalem, while Jesus was thinking of suffering and humiliation and death, sacrifice on the behalf of humanity, these men were thinking about, how can we be great? How can we make certain that we sit at our proper places within the kingdom? And if any of you that know anything about Jewish society, you won't be surprised by this. 
you'll know, especially at that time, that the culture, just like most cultures in the ancient Near East, it was all revolving around rank, around positions of authority and greatness. These men worked and they scratched and they clawed to get to their places of authority, of power, of honor within this society. Always striving, always working, always fighting, and everyone knew who was who. You see, there was a proper order. There was a proper order for who sat where in the synagogue. A proper order for who was allowed to speak and when. A proper order for who sat where at dinner tables. Everyone knew who was who, and it wasn't a thing to be embarrassed of. It was a thing to be glorified in, a thing to be honored when you stood up and announced your greatness. Made your greatness clear to everyone. No one was bashful about this. I've talked to you about this many times, but it really did just strike me as we were there in Jerusalem, even today. And the religious bigwigs would come marching down the street just with this entourage. They would be so loud and, and brusque and shoving people out of the way. Just make way. You little people, make way. Somebody great is coming through. It was just, it's just so foreign to me because we Americans, we don't act like this. We're much sneakier. We're much more subtle. We have advanced tools like social media. Ways that allow us to announce our greatness. To magnify ourselves before the world. And we're the master. We're the master of the humble brag. I ask you very pointed and specific questions for the express purpose of trying to lure you into my trap so that I can then tell you just how awesome I am. We are so much more advanced here in the West. We don't act like those silly, naive people over there. We're more subtle in the ways that we do things. We fight, and we announce our greatness like civilized people in ways that allow us to pretend like it's not happening, in ways that allow us to show up in church on Sunday morning feeling quite humble and pious about ourselves. But these men, they weren't so fortunate. The men that they had grown up watching the great men, the powerful men, the men of authority that they had grown up watching, they acted exactly like this. And so they were there openly arguing about which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And this is just the nature of man, completely self-centered, completely self-consumed, with a desperate desire to be greater than everyone else. What drove this? Was it perhaps the pride of the three that were allowed to go up the mountain, to go up the mountain, to ascend the mountain with Jesus? Was it the frustration, the embarrassment of the nine that were left at the bottom of the mountain? Was it the frustration and embarrassment of all of them that they couldn't cast the demon out of the boy with the unclean spirit? Or maybe it was just that they had heard Jesus teaching and they recognized that Jerusalem meant his death and they were wondering which of them was going to take his place as the leader. We're not sure, but we did read last week that they did not understand what Jesus was saying and were afraid to ask. Their lack of understanding should have driven them to ask. Perhaps if they have gone to Jesus, instead of arguing amongst themselves, a bunch of dopes arguing about what they thought they understood, perhaps if they had gone to Jesus, they wouldn't have found themselves standing here arguing about something so very contrary to his gospel. But this is what we do. The word of the Lord, it challenges us. It confronts us. It stretches us in every way possible. And rather than turning to the author, rather than praying to God and asking him for discernment, Rather than diving deeper into the Word, rather than doing the hard work of studying the Word, rather than allowing Scripture to translate Scripture to help bring us to a greater understanding, instead, we sit around like a bunch of dudes in a pub arguing over who the greatest baseball player is. 
as if there's no such thing as absolute truth. We like to sit around and we call Bible study sitting around and talking about what a certain verse means to us. No one cares what a verse means to you. All that matters is what the verse means. What did God say? What is he actually saying with the understanding that he wants you to know? We act as if he doesn't want us to know like this is a game of hide and seek. It is his desire that you would come to him, that you would submit to his word, that in the power of his spirit, he would bring, bring you to truly understand these words, to rightly understand and receive and believe the things that he said. But instead, we go around talking to a bunch of dummies that don't know anything. Listen, it's right and good that we wrestle together, that we come together, that we look backwards over 2,000 years of church history and see what faithful, brilliant men under the guidance of the Holy Spirit have given us. But we must go to the source at all times. We must go to the source. Otherwise, we walk around confused and frustrated and always susceptible to falling into these fallen and foolish and darkened understandings, all while holding the sufficient word of God in our hands, all while having the one who knows all, the very spirit of God within us. We fall into this horrible theology because we dare not come to the one that knows. We're just like these dudes. They walked with Jesus, and instead of coming to him and asking him the question that was on their mind, they wouldn't dare do that because they were afraid, because they knew that what he was going to say was going to confront them in their sin. It was going to demand obedience. It was going to demand change. And I don't want to change. I want to bend this word to my will. I want to bend this word to my circumstances. I want to fit this word into my emotions. I want this word to tell me how pretty I am. I'm not going to dare go to the author because then I'm going to be confronted. We're exactly like these men. So now the Lord turns and he questions them. They don't have to speak up. He turns and he questions them. They don't have much to say. Don't worry, this wouldn't be the last time that this conversation comes up. We'll read in the third instant, instance where Jesus speaks of his death and resurrection. We'll read that James and John, they send their mommy ahead this time to ask Jesus, Jesus, would you allow my boys to sit in the positions of power within your kingdom when you come into it? So don't, don't mistake their silence for anything other than just worldly shame. This was just a temporary thing, like a little boy caught with his hand in a candy jar. They just sat there silently for a moment, and so Jesus sits down, verse 35. He sat down, and he called the 12. This was the typical posture for rabbinic teaching. He would sit down, and he would call the others to him. This was very deliberate. This is a big part of Jesus' focus, his purpose for stopping in Capernaum. But his purpose from now until Passover was this thoughtful, intentional teaching of these men. It's just another, another touch, another touch from Jesus Christ, their master, just like the two-staged healing of the blind man. We talked about this. The purpose, why did Jesus heal that man in two stages? He healed everybody else in an instant with just a word. And yet that blind man, he healed him in two stages with two touches. It was a picture of this. How they needed another touch from their master to be brought to a deeper understanding, to clearer sight. That's what he was doing. He does the same by the power of his spirit today. He does the very same for us today. He knows our hearts better than we know them ourselves, and yet still he allows us to run on at the mouth, making absolute fools of ourselves, getting caught up in the flesh, doing and thinking and saying things that have no place in the kingdom of God, so very caught up in the flesh, and then we're confronted. Whether it's from another believer, whether it's alone in our quiet time, whether it's in a corporate time of worship like this, we're confronted by the Holy Spirit. Makes clear how very wrong we are. And dear friends, may I remind you that this is one of those blessings from God. This is one of those constant, ongoing assurances from God that we are His because God will not allow His children to sit completely comfortable and content 
in our sin, if you find yourself able to live in persistent sin, just to go on chasing after the filth of this world without a care in the world, without a trouble in your soul, without an ounce of concern or conviction, dear friends, be terrified. Be very, very afraid. But for those that are his, for those that are filled with his spirit, for those that come under the conviction, the correction of his spirit, and when that moment comes, you will oftentimes find yourself sitting there terrified, trembling, afraid to even speak. But then the Lord calls you to himself. You'll notice that he didn't kick these men out of the group. Instead, he called them to himself. That's what he does. By the power of his spirit, by authority of his word, he calls us to him and then lovingly corrects. And you realize in that moment, he always knew. You may just now be coming aware of your sin. This may be the first time when you understand your sin, or perhaps just the depths of your sin, but you realize he always knew. He always knew where you were headed. He always knew where this was leading, and yet he allowed you to continue for this purpose. So that he may have this opportunity for correction and for instruction. This loving discipline of your father. He allowed you to pursue after this thing, which was so very contrary to him, so that you may come to this moment where you may come to clear sight and deeper understanding all for your good. For the sake of his glory and for your good, that you may sit at his feet and receive his instruction. Instruction you were not otherwise ready to receive. Instruction that you would have been resistant to before this. He brings them here. He sits down and he calls the 12, verse 35. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And Matthew and Luke make clear that Jesus is talking about greatness. Greatness within the kingdom of God. Now for those of us that have spent any time in church, these words aren't all that shocking. They don't catch us off guard. We're completely familiar with this idea that he would be first, must be last. But if you read these words with fresh eyes, you hear them with fresh ears, you will see how very surprising Jesus' response is. He doesn't scold his believers for their desire for greatness. He doesn't look to them and say, what is wrong with you people? Quit looking for greatness. Quit striving for greatness. He doesn't do this at all. Instead, what Jesus does is he sits them down and he says, let me show you the path to being first. Let me show you the only way to true greatness in the kingdom of God. See, I've had this thought for 10 years rumbling around in my head, and it's not a new thought, it's not an original thought, but I just haven't found the proper words to express this thought. But it is so very clear as we wrestle with Scripture and we see and come to understand the kingdom of God, it's so very clear that this thing to which we have been called, this, this life of following after Christ, that there is never anything that we, are not, that we are called to do that does not ultimately lead to our good. There is nothing about the Christian life lived properly which does not ultimately lead to blessing. Firstly, because we have the ultimate assurance that as those that love God, if those that have been called according to his purpose, that he will work all things. This is the macro. He will work all things together for our good. But then at the more micro level, in our daily decisions, in the ways in which we live and love and give and serve of everything that we have, our money, our time, our talents, our worship, our name, our very life, Jesus never says, although it would be completely within his rights, as the Lord of the universe is the one that has laid down his life to purchase your salvation, it would be completely within Jesus' right, and yet you do not find him saying, give these things away, let loose, suffer, serve, sacrifice, die. Oh, there's nothing in it for you. This is all a complete loss. It's all a negative. There is no payoff. There is no blessing. There is no goodness that is going to come your way, but I'm the master. 
I'm the God of the universe, and I said so, so do it. We don't see him doing that. Instead, we find words like those in Mark 10, verse 29 through 31. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my name's sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are to be first will be last and the last first. This is the call. Obedience to God. Daily denial, self-denying, it is always in our best interest. Once all is said and done, it always leads to blessing and goodness in our life. The question is, do you believe it? Do you trust in his promises? Because the things of this world are visible. They're right here. And the crowd seems to be running that way. Have you ever noticed, you ever seen these pranks online or these things online where people will just start running and other people will just turn and start running with them? No clue why they're running. No clue if they're running to win something. No clue if they're running from something scary. It's just everybody's running that way, and so I'm going. That's the way of the world. It's running after something, something that's so very visible, so very tangible. The question is, will you trust in the promises of the invisible God, or will you cling to the things of this world that are right there before you that you can taste and touch and smell and see? See, we referred often to the last half of Paul's words in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. I've referred to them often because they're so very fundamental. It just, it just shows so very clearly the foolishness of man. I'm not going to read through that entire text this morning. We've done it on many occasions. But what we find there is we read about how the wrath of God is revealed against man and how, how it comes against men as he hands us over to our evil desires, to the wickedness of our heart, and how that rebellion, that wicked, wicked and hardened hearts that we have, it manifests itself in the exchanges that we make is we exchange the worship of God for the worship of images of man and things. How we exchange the truth of God for a lie. How we exchange God-given natural relationships for perversities. And all the exchanges that we make, and all the things that we grasp for, and all the things that we let loose of, we are always giving up. We are always handing down. We are always losing. And every exchange that we make, it is always downward. Man, in our sinful state, we lose every single trade that we make. And Jesus is saying here, stop. Stop. Stop settling for so little. Stop settling for the rubbish of this world. I have made you for something so much more. As those of you that are mine, I have set you free from this world. All of this world. I have set you free from this world, and I have now created you. You are created into something new. You have been renewed. You've been reborn. You've been rebuilt with a heart that desires something so much more that this world cannot offer. And once you taste it, you'll be like a duck in water. You will realize this is what I was made for. The stuff of this world. I was trying to, to shove a, a square peg into a round hole. This was never what I was meant for. That's why I was never satisfied with any of it. You notice this. There is no level of praise that you people could heap upon me that would ever leave me satisfied because tomorrow I'd need more. I'd always be longing for more. But when you find the gifts of God, when you trust in his internal blessings, when you see the thing that he has really made you for, you start looking forward to this heavenly, eternal reward. That's what he's telling them. You'll never want to go backwards. When you start storing up treasures in heaven, instead of storing stuff here that's going to waste away all in the end, and intrinsically, you know that. That's why you have people walk around with this sense of dread and anxiety, because they know that the things that they have, they have put all their treasures in, it's not going to last. And so it's like sand through an hourglass. It's like water running through your hands. You know it's not going to last forever. 
And he's saying, I've made you for eternal blessing. Beyond that, watch what happens as you let loose of the things of this world and you entrust them into my hands. And I take them, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing, and laid in your lap. Watch the way I just magnify, blow up the things that you handed into my hands. It was all mine anyway. I'm asking you, would you just give it back to me? And again, we're not just talking about money. We're not just talking about stuff. We're talking about everything, your life, your energy, your talents, your name, your reputation, everything. He's saying here, act for the sake of my kingdom. Act for the sake of my name. Put yourself last, trusting that it's not only for my glory, although that's the ultimate purpose, but it's also for your greatest good. If you will just count it all as lost, let loose of all of it. For my name's sake, watch what happens. For once in your life, would you make an upward exchange? For once in your life, would you win in a transaction? You don't have to do anything but let go of some stuff. Let loose of the things that this world is running after. Turn and walk in the opposite direction while the world charges after filth, after more of the stuff that's going to run through their fingers. But the key is you must make the exchange. You can't have both. You can't go clinging on to the things of this world and expect the goodness of God, the gifts of God, the eternal blessings of God. That's what he's saying to them here. Which do you choose? Which do you cherish? Which do you trust? Don't you see? And so when he's talking to these men here, he's not telling them, stop seeking greatness. It is not an admirable thing for us to say, you know, I hope I'm the worst, the sorriest, the most lowly Christian in the history of Christendom. I hope that God never uses me for anything. I hope that at the end of this lifetime, I've found that it has been completely wasted, used in no way for service to the king and the kingdom of God. That's not a thing to be applauded. No, listen to what Paul says in Romans 2, Romans 2, 6 through 7. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, that is a loaded, loaded verse, and there's a lot of theology in there. But what I want you to see, what I want you to pull out of there this morning, is you see that what God is saying through Paul is it is good, it is right, that through doing good, through working hard, through acts of service, that you seek for glory and honor and immortality. But we must stop seeking the ways of this world. We must stop seeking the glory of this world, and we must stop seeking it in the way that the world seeks after it. You cannot believe that you can hold on to the glory of this world, to greatness in this world, to being first in this world, while being first in the kingdom of God, while being great in the kingdom of God. We absolutely cannot walk the way that the world walks. We can't chase the things that they chase, and we cannot sit around begging them for their applause, for their approval. We need to recognize that even the way that the world chases great, it's, it's just so backwards. It's so messed up. Think about it. Even among those people that care nothing about the kingdom of God, even among those people that believe that this world is all that there is, even among those people that care nothing about eternal blessings, even among those people that are running the same direction as all the rest of human humanity, how many of them actually want to be great? How many of them actually want to be great and accomplish great things? Honestly, look around you. When was the last time that you saw somebody actually striving to be great? To accomplish great things. No. They just want other people to believe they're great. They don't want to work. They don't want to strive. They don't want to sweat. They don't want to put in anything to be great at things. To do great things. To be the greatest at anything. When was the last time you ever saw anybody do something just to do it? 
I will climb Mount Everest. I'll swing the, swim the English Channel. And I'm not going to tell a soul. Well, maybe they did and they didn't tell me, and that's why I don't know. But, no, everybody rushes to post about it. They call their friends and their media to come record it. Men don't want to be great. They just want to have the appearance of greatness. They just want the rewards of greatness. They just want you to tell them how great they are without having to ever accomplish anything. Without having to ever put in the work. Now, of course, I'm not telling you that this, is the life, that this should be our life's goal. Of course not. These kind of accomplishments, the accomplishments in this world, in the end, they're all going to burn up. Although, there is some truth. There is very real ways in which we glorify God when we take, as those that are created in his image, as those that are called by his name, when we take those good gifts that he's given us, and we do put in the work, we sweat, we labor humbly for the sake of his glory. When we take all that he has given and we labor as unto him, as unto his glory, there is something about that that glorifies God. But I'm saying, even among those, that's not the desire of men. Men don't desire to be great. They don't desire to do great things. They just want to edit and lip sync and Photoshop long enough that convinces you that they're great, or at very least convinces you that they're greater than you. But I'm afraid that that same mindset has sip, slipped into the Christian life. There's so few people that say, I actually want God to take everything that he has created in me, every gift that he has given me, everything that he has made me to be, and I want him to use it for great things in the kingdom of God. So very few people look to God and they say, God, you have created me. You know who I am. Whatever mind I have, you gave it to me. Whatever health I have, you gave it to me. Whatever skills, whatever gifting, whatever goodness I have in this life, whatever I have to contribute to your kingdom, it came from you. Now use it up completely. Every last ounce, every last ounce of who I am, I want you to ring me out completely. At the end of this life, I want nothing left. I want to have used it all for the sake of the kingdom of God. Use, use me, God, completely and totally use me. Not for a day, not for a season, not for a decade. You've seen those people. They come out like a house of fire. Golly, that guy's on fire for the kingdom of God. And then a day or a month, or a year, or a decade later, you realize they believe they put in their time and they're done. I'm talking about a life well lived, a race completed, all out, use me completely until there is nothing left. We don't think this way because that path is hard. That path is scary. That path requires suffering and sacrifice. We're all too happy with other people just believing we're great, with other people just telling us we're great. Or perhaps if I can just outrank all of you, then I'll be okay. So instead, what do I do? I hedge my bets. I hold something back. I reserve the good stuff in the back. What I give God is whatever is left over. God, use this. Hey, look, you're God. You can do something with nothing, right? How about if I give you nothing? Let's see what you do with that, God. Well, I hold the best back for the applause of men, for the treasures of this world, making sure that not only do I have my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, I want to make sure that my name's written on the Hall of Fame in First Baptist Church of Crosby. I want to make sure those people know me when I'm gone. It's not it. We cannot chase greatness the way that the world chases greatness. We cannot hold on to the greatness of this world while being great in the kingdom of God. And so what he's telling them here is he's not chastising them for their desire to be great. What he's doing, he's taking that idea of greatness and he's turning it completely on his head. He's saying this is the path. This is the way to true greatness. It is nothing like the way the world chases greatness. You must be last. This is the way it is with everything in the kingdom of God. Everything is so very contrary to our human nature. Everything is upside down and backwards from the way of the world. Our instincts are always pulling against us because he says things like, if you would like to save your life, you must lose it. But if you hold on to your life, you'll, you, 
you want to save your life, you must lose it. If you lose your life, you will save it. Saying things like, you must love your enemies. Forgive those that curse you. You must give generously. You must not hold on to an offense. You must forgive liberally. You must lay down your earthly life that you may gain eternal life. That the proud will be put to shame and the humble will be honored and lifted up. That you'll find true satisfaction in the worship of another. And that if you would want to be first, that you must be last. This is why the world hates us. They think we're crazy because we terrify them. Because we celebrate. We find joy. We find satisfaction and fulfillment in the things that terrify them. They look at us and they go, what game are you playing? It's like you've made up some rules and we don't understand them. They're backwards and they're upside down and it scares us. But the reality is that God has just revealed to us the mystery of his kingdom. He's shown us that since the fall of man, everything has been out of order. Everything has been out of whack. And I've created you for something different. So what does being last look like? I believe this. I, I believe God's word. I believe when he tells me that he who would be first must be last. That's what it looks like to be great in the kingdom of God, but how? Because I know what it means. I'm not saying that it's easy and I'm not saying that I do it well. But I know what it means to hold my life very loosely. I know what it, light, what, it, what it means to walk around with a willingness to lay down my health and my life, my, my physical life, for the sake of the kingdom of God. And I know what it means. Again, I don't do it all that well. I'm not saying I've got it mastered. But I know what it means to be willing to give generously of my time, my talents, my money, my energy, all for the sake of the gospel. I know what these things mean. But what does it look like to be last? Again, it can't be false humility. It can't be walking around sad all the time, talking down about, about yourself. It can't be hiding or denigrating the gifts that God has given you. It can't be that. So how do we be last? Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Servant of all. Life of a disciple is a life of servant. The life of following Christ, which leads to glory. The life of being last, which leads to being first. It is a life of service. It's the life of a servant. Jesus would teach this explicitly in Mark 10, 45, when he speaks about himself. He says, the Son of Man came not to serve, but came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Of course, never has there been anyone greater in the history of the world than Jesus Christ. And he came, refusing to be served, washing the feet of his disciples. Even after the resurrection, standing on the shore of the sea while his men were out fishing all night, he was there standing on the shore of the sea after the resurrection, preparing breakfast for them. And most clearly, we see it in his laying down of his life, in his humbling himself, giving himself, giving his life, drinking down the cup of his father's wrath for the sake of sinners. To be great, to be truly great, is to be transformed, to be renewed, to act and live and think in every way like Jesus Christ, the one who is greatest. And Jesus came to serve. In every imaginable way, he came as a humble servant. For the glory of God and for the love of man, knowing that once all was said and done, he would return to his rightful position, to his rightful place at the right hand of God. Go back to that Philippians 2 passage. Philippians 2, I'll begin in verse 9. We see this as, as after Paul talks about Jesus humbling himself and coming in the form of a servant and giving himself even to obedience, even to the point of death. We read there, he goes on in Philippians 2 verse 9. He says, therefore, the therefore points back to all the other stuff that we just talked about. The humbling and the service and the giving himself. Therefore, because of those things, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
God glorified Jesus, glorified the Father in everything that he did and all that he did, all the way up to his atoning, sacrificial death on the cross. And now, Jesus' glory is on full display. So he is there, vindicated by the empty tomb. He is there, night and day, day and night, receiving the worship that he was always due. From the holy angels and the saints that have gone above, they are there singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And we shall, of course, never become God. We will never become the objects of worship and praise, nor should we ever desire to be. But this is the path to greatness. Service in the way that Jesus served, following the one who is greatest. To be great, to be used in the kingdom of God is to live a life like his is to walk and speak and give and die in the way that Jesus died. That's our response to all that we have seen in him. That's our response to all that we have seen, that we are no longer our own, knowing that we have been purchased at a price, that every ounce of everything that we have in this lifetime for our own good, yes, it will play out for our own good, but ultimately for his glory, that we give it all completely. This is the way of a servant, and this is the way to be first. This is the way to true greatness. And it's not merely at those times that are convenient. It's not merely at those times when it, brings us the most human praise. This is not the way of a servant. A servant serves at all times, not just when he feels like it, not just when he believes that others are going to see him and that he preys upon him, not when it's convenient, not when he's emotionally moved by the situation, not when he has some particular affinity for the person that he's called to serve, not whenever he feels like the service is fitted to his gifting, not when he feels like the service is worthy of all that he is, not when he has nothing better to do. At all times, in every way, a servant serves. Whatever the task is before him, that is what a servant does. Servants will find themselves kicking down the door to this place, ready at all times and all ways to figure out how can we serve. There would be nothing left to be done around here because everybody would be on their knees picking lint out of the carpet, trying to figure out how can I serve? What needs to be done and how can I do it? That's not my gifting. Who asked you that? I paid my dues. Who told you that? The servant serves at all times and in every ways, putting the needs of the ones that they serve among the, above themselves. And in addition to that, they don't only serve at all times, but they serve all people. He's especially talking about the brothers here, fellow believers. But he's saying you must be prepared to serve all, not just those that you deem worthy and not just those that are most likely to repay you, not just those that are most likely to be able to repay the service that you've given them. You must be a servant to all, even if this means giving away your very life for someone who will completely disregard it. Giving your life away completely to someone who will never know all that you have done on their behalf. That is the life of a servant. And he took the child, and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to him, said to them, excuse me, verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus now gives them a physical lesson, a visible picture of the thing that he's been speaking about. So he grabs a child. This is a child within the house, perhaps Peter's son. That's what I like to imagine. We don't know. But he grabs the boy and he takes him in his arms. A very tender picture. But it loses some of its weight in our culture today. Because in first century Palestine, children were not honored. They were not, they were not, had no standing. They were not looked upon the way we look upon them today. Women, children, they, they had no standing in society back then. And a child, a young child especially, a child of the likes of which he could have pulled up on his knee or pulled in his arms, a child like this would not have had a place in a meeting like this. Additionally, in, in a time and place like that where the mortality rate of children is so very high, they didn't even look at children as being real people until they reached a certain age. And that's so foreign to us because we just naturally, innately love children. 
I mean, I've, I've spoken often about the fact I love kids more than I love adults. I mean, I just, you're naturally drawn to them, and you're naturally drawn to care for them and give to them. And I'm not saying that parents didn't feed their babies back then. That's not the point. But it's just they didn't, ha- we didn't have that same natural. We, a child cries, and we all jump up to go meet its needs. A child walks into a meeting like this, and we immediately attend to them. That wasn't the case back then. That isn't the case. And so because of this, as he calls this child, he was showing you truly the lowliest in some senses, to them, the least valuable members of the household. The Greek word that's used there, it's also used for slave. So he's saying this child, this insignificant child, this child that is completely incapable of repaying your kindness. You know, children are most likely to disregard and to completely take for granted any service that you give them. They're going to turn around and act as if you've done nothing for them whatsoever, and they're going to demand more. And he's saying... Just as no one would ever think of serving a child any more than they would think of serving their slave. He's saying that to be great in the kingdom of God, you must serve all and all means all, even the lowliest, especially the lowliest among us. That's what it means to be a true servant. You take the most powerless within God's family and you serve him with no regard for whether he's ever going to even reach the age of maturity and repay you, whether he's ever going to remember the things that you've done and repay you. We see here in Luke 14, 13 through 14, Jesus speaks about this. He says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He's saying that the rest of the world, they're all too happy to serve the people in positions of power. They're all too happy to be a servant to people in positions of power and people that they believe are going to be be able to repay them or people that are going to shout from the rooftops about the ways that you have humbly served them. But nobody wants to serve a child who cannot speak up about it. Nobody wants to serve the lame that cannot repay you. Nobody wants to serve the poor that is going to have nothing to give in exchange. So we look at this child and we're reminded that we ourselves have nothing to offer. There was nothing that God needed. There's none of God's goodness that he bestowed upon us. In giving the life of his son, Jesus Christ, there is none of that that he crossed his fingers and said, please love me, please love me, please love me. Please tell people how good I am. Please pay me back. Please bring your tithes into the storehouse. Please serve in my name. He needed none of that, and yet still, his son Jesus Christ came humbling himself as a servant to the point of giving his life so that now when we serve the powerless, we show that we trust in the one who has all power. When we serve the most unworthy, we show that we cherish the one that is worthy of all our praise. And again, you'll notice that what Jesus says here as as he's speaking to his apostles, he says to them that you will receive this child in his name. This isn't for the sake of self. Ultimately, as I said, yes, this will lead to blessing, to God's glory and to our blessing ultimately, but we cannot serve to be seen by others. This is the way the Pharisees work. This is the way much of the world works. They serve in their own name to be seen by others. The Pharisees, they were often serving. They were often doing acts of charity. They looked quite pious, but it was never done quietly. It was always, whenever they were fasting, looking as sad as possible. When they were praying, standing out in the courtyards, making sure that everybody heard. Whenever they gave alms, having somebody sound a trumpet to show just how good they are. We cannot serve in this way. We cannot serve as if we are paying our dues. We cannot serve as if we want the applause of men. We cannot serve because we're trying to build a name for ourselves in this life. You see, the moment your thoughts drift to yourself, the moment your thoughts drift to yourself and to your own interests, the moment you begin to sit around in this worship service, some of you have done it, and you're fixing to be real embarrassed, but some of you sit in a service, and you go, that sounds just like me. I am so humble. You've lost it. You've completely messed it up. You've completely forfeited any eternal blessing that you would have, any reward that you would have. Like the hypocrites that Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount, they have received all the reward they will receive in this lifetime. 
All of this must be done in the name of Christ, in the authority of Jesus Christ for his reputation and for his name as slaves to God. A servant doesn't go out and do things for his name's sake. He goes out representing his master. Any goodness that we do, any service that we do, any gifts that we give are done in the name of the one that sent us, in the name of the one that's gifted us, in the name of the one who has purchased us as his slave, as his servant. There's so many times that this is where we go off track. We do these good things, and oftentimes they're moved by things that seem altruistic in and of themselves. We serve and we give and we go for the sake of humanity or culture or the world. Don't get me wrong. Jesus was moved by compassion. Be like Christ. Just have a heart to see the hurting, to have compassion and sympathy and love for those that are hurting. But ultimately, it must be for the sake of his glory. In addition to that, serving and receiving a child in Jesus' name carries the connotation of serving Jesus Christ himself. As this, this child, this lowly one, the most meek, the most insignificant, as if that one is coming, it's Jesus Christ, as if you're serving the king for the sake of the kingdom. Not just serving the world in the name of the king, actually serving the king. When Jesus speaks about the blessed at the day of final judgment, Matthew 25, 40, I know this is long, but we're going. Matthew 25, 40, he says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you also did to me. There was a book that I read when I was a little kid, and I have another copy. I like it so much I bought another copy of it as a grown-up. It's called If Jesus Came to My House. It's a good little board book. I'd encourage you to buy it if you don't have it. Anyways, this book, If Jesus Came to My House, it's all about this idea that if Jesus came to your house, how would you treat him? How would you serve him? How would you give him the best and the most on and the most whatever? And the picture is that while we can't do that physically with Jesus Christ, we can do that with the most humble, with the lowliest, with the most insignificant, with the sick. When I pray with my girls, I try not to get into rote prayers, but I do sometimes, right? I'm speaking specifically about bedtime prayers, right? My girls are old enough. We don't need to do sing-songy, rhymy prayers anymore. We need to have real, deep, meaningful prayers. But sometimes when we come to our, our bedtime, sometimes I'm tired and my mind drifts. Sometimes I'm just not engaging with God as I should. And they, they get kind of rote. They get just kind of repetitive. But one of the things that I say often in my prayer, and I don't think it's bad, is, God, would you please bless? Would you please care for? Would you please show concern for those that are sick and sad and hungry and lonely and scared? But as we care for those people, it is as if, particularly those within the kingdom of God, it is as if we were caring for God himself. As if Jesus Christ himself had walked into our home and we gave him the greatest seat. We fed him the finest meal. Anyone that walked in the house, we said, look at who's here. Jesus is here. It's not I'm tap dancing and singing a song so you can tell me how wonderful I am. So let me show you the one that has shown up. In addition to that, not only would we receive as we receive those that in Jesus' name, not only do we receive them for the sake of Jesus' glory, not only to receive them as if we were receiving Jesus Christ himself, we receive them with more of Jesus Christ as our ultimate goal. That's what he's saying here when he says that this is to be our ultimate treasure, our greatest reward, that when we receive this child, this lowly one, this one that is so much lower, that we receive Jesus Christ himself and as the only way to God, is the only path to God, is the only means to God, that as we receive Jesus Christ, we receive God himself. This has got to be our ultimate goal. I want more of you, Jesus Christ. I want more of you, God. I don't care what the world has to offer. I don't care what they say about me. I don't care what my reputation is. Dear friends, be very, very, very careful when you catch yourself thinking about or speaking about your reputation. Worry about your witness, yes. You want to walk in holiness. You want to adorn the gospel. You do not want to find yourself disqualified. But when you start thinking about your reputation, your name, be very, very careful. We do this for the sake of his glory. We do this for more of him.
because we so desperately desire to know and to be and to experience more of him. And the beauty in all this is the more that we follow after this, the more that we seek God's glory, the more that we serve in his name, the better off everybody else around us is. Because you people are a bunch of jerks. You're fickle, and I'm fickle. And you do things that completely disregard the way that I serve you. You are so unworthy of my service. And people that I was on fire to serve yesterday, they're just an absolute burden to me today. I can't even stand to look at you anymore. But when I serve with my eyes fixed on Christ, when I serve for the sake of his name, for the sake of his kingdom, and that I want more of him, and I don't care then how you respond, what would I care? Spit in my face. Good. Treasures in heaven. Ding. Dear friends, don't you see how it is all so completely upside down? It's just an exchange. It's just an exchange, and I'm asking you just to win for once. I'm asking you to grab the greater and let loose of the lesser. And as hard as it is to believe that your name, your reputation, your honor, your glory is lesser, it is. It is. And you watch the way you begin to bless the people around you. You watch the way your heart begins to change about the people around you. As you see them, it's Jesus Christ walking into your house. And you see them as a way in which you can glorify him. And you see them as a means to more of Christ. Man, everything just changes. Our relationships change. And by this, the world knows that you are mine as you love one another. Humbly, you love one another. You're announcing to the world that you are his. And then you're making beautiful, making clear the thing that he has done. He has brought a bunch of sinful, selfish people. You people are awful. You would be killing each other in this room if it weren't for Christ uh, and that's that's not an exaggeration by the way for the grace of God to be removed from this place we would all literally be as evil as we could be but, but even beyond that we're not for Jesus Christ look at you people why would you ever hang out why would you ever serve each other why would you ever give to a common uh, to a common goal why would you lift your voices as one that's the beauty of the church and that's what people miss out on when they try to go be the church by themselves when they try to go be lone wolf Christians, God is glorified when this messed up bunch of people come together, made into something new, made into a body. My heart breaks for people that won't come into this place. They won't worship together with us. I sing songs in the shower. I worship God when I'm driving down the road. Okay, but how about coming together, bumping into sinful people, serving the people that have already offended you, serving people that weren't there when you needed serving. Golly Molly, that's where God, golly Molly, that's not a real word, is it? It's better than yelling, though. I didn't yell like I did last week. So. Goodness gracious. God is magnified in that. He is glorified in that. Dear friends, I pray that that would be your goal. More of Christ. More of him. Serving him. Making a name for him. And trusting that it will be in your best interest, in your family's best interest, in this community's best interest, in the best interest of the world as we just seek and chase and charge after him. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you for this people, Father that would willingly come to this place on a Sunday morning and sit through almost an hour of teaching from your word, Father. We praise you for that because we know that your word is worth more. It's worth more than our sleep. It's worth more than our comfort. It's worth more than our extracurricular activities. It's worth more than our name and our life. So, Father, it is our desire to have more of you have more of you, and we know the only means to more of you is through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, it is our desire now to express back to you, to sing songs of praise, expressing that truth that you have now hidden within our hearts. It is our desire to glorify you now in your very presence. So be glorified, Father. We pray that you would be pleased by the words that we sing. Through your son's precious name we pray.
Amen.